Hello again, folks. To celebrate our 10th season and our continued love of watches, I am pleased to bring you a special bonus episode conversation with Asher Rapkin of Silicon Valley Watch Community Collective and writer Jason Heaton of The Grey Nado and his recent novel, Depth Charge. We discuss our love of all things mechanical, the origins of Collective and their recent collaboration with IWC, the famous Dirty Dozen watches of World War II, and watches we feel were overlooked. If you're into watches, this is your pod. Let's go! Both of you are are two like watch collectors, watch folks who come from, I think, very different paths. Asher from Collective and Jason from Jason Heaton Inc. I don't even, I don't, is it, you're, you know, um, but I'm really, really glad that, you know, both of you are together and I, I'd love to chat a little bit about both of your guys' uh, backstory briefly, but also, you know, talk a bit about why watches, specifically IWC, like why people are so fascinated with watches that really don't add much more than what they already are. And I say I say that in the sense that like we're surrounded by technology, we're surrounded by like, you know, you have dive computers, you have all of these things where like the watches aren't really necessary anymore. But for some reason, myself and all of us included, like we love these little mechanical marbles on our wrists, you know, romantic, you know, milestones of, of joy, of architectural like wonder. And it's just like, for me, you know, it's kind of like, why is it that we're so obsessed with these things? Like, so without further ado, um, Asher, you know, you're, you're from collective, uh, the watch group. Can you just give a very brief explanation about what that is? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, Thanks for thanks for having me, and and it's really good to see your face, man. Even if it's through a computer. Yeah, COVID, baby. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, look, I I always I always have a, a kind of weird visceral reaction to that question because it, it it's as if someone is questioning like why is it that we need art at all? You know, I, I mean, to me, watches have always been these a canvas for kinetic art and a canvas for emotional storytelling and. You know, we can look at it in all different ways, but but the watches that really speak to me are the ones that elicit a real, a real guttural reaction. You know, in in the wearer, something that that makes you want to put it on, go do something, or live vicariously through it. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, I mean, you're you're certainly right. I've got four devices on my table right here. You know, that are all telling me the exact precise time far yeah. more accurately than anything I'm wearing. But but you know, with 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 respect to to Apple and and Google and every every other device on my table here, they don't have any soul and when we look at something like an IAWC or, or, or any other watch that, that I admire, there's a point of view. Right. It can trigger that, that connection to a dream or to a story in a way that, that a more literal object and a more accurate object can't. And in the end, why does one put a pilot watch on if not to dream of flying, if not to dream of the excitement of it? I mean, I, look, it's going to sound super corny, but whenever I have a pilot's watch on, I'm wearing a big pilot right now. And mm-hmm. I get in my car, which is a Subaru. It's a dad mobile. And yeah. I grab, you know, and I grab the, and I grab the, and I, and I shift it into gear. It feels cool in a way that it just wouldn't, you know, if I was, if I was just uh, looking down at my, at my Apple watch. And those little moments are what make these artifacts so critical. Otherwise, you know, it's just one less, one less bright, shiny moment in our day. And, and, and that's sad. Well, so 
that kind of brings me to you, Jason. So, Jason, you and I met many, many years ago at uh, a watch event. And it was interesting because at that time, like I was very, you know, new and green and had no idea what I was doing. And what was basically like I knew enough to be dangerous, right? Like, and you were like very, you know, kind to me. And because I was trying to talk to you about like, what are other watches that I could get that I can get into? And you were talking to me about pilot watches. You were talking to me about a lot of uh, like other types of watches that had more function over the form. And I think you were the only person at that entire event that embodied what the function of the watches that you own did. Like, I remember, uh, you know, and this was through uh, Alex Haxton at the time that we had met, uh, who's still at Lange, um, where you were talking about how you were like, you would dive with these watches, like you would, you would actually use them in the field. And so I'm curious if you could just kind of give like a very brief, many people already know you from the Great NATO and your book. But if you could just give kind of a brief introduction of like, you know, what brought you into this uh, in the first place? Yeah, sure. Um, You know, I come to watches from uh, less of a collector's sort of appreciation for them and more from a gear background. I, um, my first watch was, uh, as as I've said several times before in different outlets, um, a Seiko dive watch that I got when I was in high school. And there was just something about that watch that captivated me and kind of inspired my, or, or got my juices flowing, you know, and inspired me to go out and, and do stuff. It just transcended just some object on my wrist, especially as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And then in the mid 2000s, early 2000s, I, I got a, a dive watch in Omega, which was kind of my first luxury piece. Um, but it was on a rubber strap. It was a dive watch and it actually inspired me to take up diving. And I oh, think wait, so fact- it's not the other way around. No, it was not the other way around. I, I got this watch in 2007 and I was wearing it and and I thought to myself, you know, I was kind of getting into watches, reading about them, especially this one and about dive watches. And I was like, I can't wear this watch if I don't know how to dive. I just felt like a poser, you know. All of and, us shrink uh, into our chairs <laughs> as he's talking. <laughs> and, and, and so I went, I went and... Uh, and I learned how to dive. And, and this was a time when I was working as a, as a marketing manager for a translation agency. And, um, and it changed my career. I mean, it changed my life. I, I got into watches, writing about watches, and then specifically dive watches. Because I, at the time, uh, I was you know, one of very few, if any, people who was, who was taking watches diving. And then my wife was, was also a diver, and she did the underwater photography. And one thing led to another, and I quit my day job and just started kind of this very niche career of writing about dive watches. And so I can, I can actually trace back a career change and a life change to buying a watch that then inspired me to go do stuff. And I think that's always been my philosophy about watches is that they're, they're these sort of inspirational pieces or these sort of collectors of memories or talismans or touch points of, you know, leading an adventurous life. And, and, you know, Jeremy, it's ironic that you and I met and kind of started this whole discussion at a Langa event. Yeah. You know, Langa is not exactly a, a watch that, you know, inspires you to go jump in the water. Sure. Um, or fly a plane <laughs> or anything. But, um, you know, it, it all kind of dovetails, I think, because I think the more you learn about whatever kind of watch you're getting into, you also th- then start to appreciate what's going on inside of these watches. And, and I think Langa is just a classic case of that. Um, but, you know, whether it's a brand like IWC or Omega, you know, when I'm, you know, 
100 feet underwater and I look at my wrist and I see this sweep hand slowly circling the dial, I think to myself, this is kind of a, a small miracle that you have this little capsule of gears and springs, you know, in many cases, you know, hand assembled, um, you know, keeping perfect time. Yeah. A hundred feet underwater. You know, it's, it's, it's still a very remarkable thing to me after diving with hundreds of watches of, of still having that experience. Right. I mean, th- th- there is a part of me that wants to just see you do that with a da- data graph, but you know, that's, that's just me. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, it, it's, it, it's so interesting to hear you say that too, because I was just thinking back as you were describing it, like what, what my, what my first watch was and like what attracted me to it. And, and it was, it was a Scoggin. Yeah. It was, like a, it was a hundred dollar Scoggin that I bought in. Oh, in so those place. were the like ultra thin, just for listeners, yeah. they were the super, super thin, like, uh, sharper image style, like watches, <laughs> like, right. Like it was like a technology <laughs> yeah. flex. Yeah. 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 Well, it, it was, it, it was super thin, but it was, it was, it was like super design oriented. Like I bought it at this, like this, like tiny little, like, uh, you know, tourist gallery. Um, when I, when yeah. I was on vacation with my parents, I was like 16 years old in Maine. It was like a hundred dollars. Damn. Yeah. And I, but I remember buying this thing because I just, uh, I'd never seen a watch that like, I'd never seen a watch that was, that, that was, that was aesthetically driven. Like, you know, I'd grown up, you know, with like Casio computer watches and like Indiglo's, which are all awesome in their own right. But like, I never thought I had no emotional connection to them. And it was just like a thing that told me what time it was, you know, mm-hmm. but, but the Scoggin was the first time I saw a watch that, that, that spoke to me emotionally and creatively. And, you know, well, well, I'd love to finish the sentence and say, and that's what led me to my career, you know, uh, in Danish architecture. Um, <laughs> it's, it's sadly not, but, but it did, it did open my eyes to, to watches as a creative canvas. And it, you know, part of what's so awesome about the watch community, it's, it's incredible to hear you say this is, you know, a, a little object like that drove you to something that, that if, if I'm not mischaracterizing changed your life. Mm-hmm. You know, and and for me, I, I I didn't think about it at all until years later when I kept tracking back to well, why is it that I get you know that I'm attracted to independent watches or just watches writ large, and it's it's always like the design object first, you know, the practicality yeah. of it second. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think my mindset has changed over the years. I think I used to be the exact opposite of that. For me, it was all about functionality. I I, I used to work at a a mountaineering store when I was you know just after college and selling kayaks and skis and things. And and the watch at the time that all the uh, kind of outdoor nerds were wearing was like a Sunto, a Vector, which was a, an altimeter watch, you know, big yellow. I had a yellow one on a big long rubber strap and it was like the epitome. It's, it was like what a dive watch does for some people. It's like that was the watch you wore and it was kind of your symbol of I do cool stuff. Um, and then when I started riding for Gear Patrol in like 2008, um, and I was doing reviews of backpacks and, and bikes and boots and things. Um, you know, I, that's when I was discovering watches. And so to get that first Omega and kind of get into dive watches and then discover Doxa, um, it, it came from the same place for me. It came from this function first, what can this watch do and how are they used back in the old days? And can I still use it in the same way? Can I still twist the bezel to time a dive? And yes, you can, but I think what are we now, you know, 15 years on, um, I've come to appreciate the, uh, I guess the finer things in watches, you know, I, I feel like I've matured as kind of a, I, I'm finally able to admit that I'm a collector and that I can appreciate having a vintage watch that doesn't have to get wet or go underwater. Um, you know, I've got a grand Seiko GMT that, you know, I don't wear very often, but when I pull it out, I, that's okay. I can turn it over and appreciate the movement. Um, so in that respect, I think, 
you know, Jeremy, again, going back to that Longa trip, I remember trying to engrave a balance cock. I think that was one of our little tasks. On yes. That, yes. On that I trip. still have I was, mine, by the way. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't know where mine is. But uh, yeah, it was it was incredibly difficult. It just gave me such an appreciation for for the artistry of these things. Yeah. And I think more importantly, like the function, because you were one of the many people who actually turned me on to IWC because mm-hmm. obviously like the long event, German company and yeah. IWC is, you know, kind of like, you know, been on that border, uh, obviously, you know, Schaffhausen, but you turned me on to the Dirty Dozen and actually really kind of put me on to, um, you know, pilots watches in general. I, I mean, yeah. if because I'm going to butcher it. If you could explain to the listeners what the Dirty Dozen was, uh, that would be awesome. Yeah, sure. So um, during World War II, the Ministry of Defense, the British Military of Defense, procured uh, a, a watch for its RAF pilots to a certain very specific specification. It had to have certain traits. Um, and in order to source enough watches to distribute to its pilots, to issue to them, um, they approached 12 different companies, different uh, Swiss brands. And, you know, one of those brands was IWC, but you had some defunct brands like Vertex and Record and Cerna, yeah, um, whatever, yeah. Buren and, you know, a lot of other um, more obscure brands that have just gone by the wayside. And, uh, you know, out of that came um, the IWC Mark 11 and then the Mark 12 and then that kind of that, that sort of lineage of watches that came out of that very basic uh, center seconds, anti-magnetic, legible watch with Arabic numerals um, that pilots were wearing at the time. And this was, this is, uh, um, the original Dirty Dozen was for more infantry men, you know, for, for the soldiers on the ground. But out of that came this pilot's watch uh, format that, that we all know and love nowadays that, that a lot of different brands have done. Yeah. And at the time, I mean, when you were talking to me about it, like I, because this is the thing that I think a lot of people don't, um, realize that like there's there are still tons and tons and tons of watches that you can get that have history that have all these characteristics that we all know and love and you're not going to you know break the bank per se right like you can the the entry point is significantly lower than what most people think like a, I was talking to a friend of mine and he knows that I'm into watches and he was like yeah but I'm never gonna be able to get a watch because I don't have like 50 grand or something and I was just like whoa whoa, whoa. I'm like <laughs> you can there's so Sure, if you want to start there, go for it. But there were so many entry points. But when you first told me about the Dirty Dozen, I think at that time, the watches were like much you know, easier to attain than I thought. Um, yeah. I mean, and there, you can still find old, uh, especially IWC, like, you know, because that, that I tried to find a Dirty Dozen, found one, <clears throat> I, uh, I bought the wrong one, and <laughs> then... <laughs> <laughs> and then uh ends up getting this different uh IWC watch that was like I think less than a thousand dollars. Wow. That that was like my first, you know, big big kid watch. Yeah. But like just knowing that there was that history and lineage between uh behind all of that, like really pushed me and I and I know many others down this like watch journey. Um yeah. Yeah. Which I mean it's uh you know, just to, to kind of correct myself, I was talking about the, the pilots' watches that, that came out of the Dirty Dozen, but the, the Dirty Dozen watches were actually created for for boots on the ground like yeah. soldiers, but yeah. but it was that general format that led to the creation of this kind of lineage of IWC pilots' watches and, and to a certain degree Jeger Lecoult had a had a version of it as well that that came out after the war. But um I, I think, you know, what what's really cool about that sort of general architecture or format of watch, whether it's the Dirty Dozen or the later pilot's watches, is they're 
they're watches that everybody can relate to. You know, it's probably in some respects similar to a watch that grandpa wore or dad wore. You know, it's yeah. just three hands. I mean, there isn't even a date. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I mean, these are very basic pieces. And it's, it is funny that some of them, the more obscure ones, uh, the lesser known or, or the ones that weren't, there weren't as many made, go for so many thousands of dollars. But like you said, you can still, you can still pick up, uh, you know, some of them for, for not much money, which is, uh, you know, it's getting more rare these days, but that's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. I found a really beautiful SEMA um, Dirty Dozen piece uh, a couple of months ago. Um, and to your point, it was, it was $2,000. Wow. You know, and yeah, and they're totally, they're totally accessible. But, you know, again, I was thinking about specifically the IWC Dirty Dozen, if I'm not mistaken, that was, the, that was powered by Caliber 96. Hmm. Um, and, uh, or at least the Mark, excuse me, the Mark 11 was powered by, by Caliber 96. And I remember that's kind of what led me into a backdoor into IWC because, you know, my, my partner Gabe and I often talk about the fact that like for IWC, it's like a narrow, but very, but very intense bandwidth, mm -hmm. you know, you have to, let, you, you kind of got to dial right into it. But when you, when you, when you hit it, everything kind of makes sense. And with the Mark 11, which was the first, the first IWC that I saw that kind of like grabbed me and, and, and really, you know, made me feel something. I started looking at them, but they were they were like eight thousand, nine thousand dollars, and I, it's outside of my reach. But what I discovered is that there was this whole world of dress watches that IWC produced in the nineteen fifties and sixties that are powered by the same caliber. Mm -hmm. So you know there was there was this legacy that came out of that, and um, you know I uh, I kind of skew a little bit more towards that, and I was really excited because suddenly I couldn't get near a stainless steel you know Mark Eleven, but for Two thousand dollars, I could get a gold IWC powered by the same caliber, in it, which was a completely different example of IWC's design language. And I started going down this this rabbit hole, and you start coming out and finding that that as a brand, in some ways, they you know they had this this like real gritty you know tough as nails um, uh, heritage from the mid century of the uh, or the middle of the last century, but then they started taking these these kind of wild risks, not just in their dress watches. But but once you start getting to things like Porsche design in, you know, the, the 1970s and 1980s, and it, they're one of these brands that that is fascinating to me because they, they would meld, you know, the tough as nails vibe with this sort of upscale aesthetic, kind of like uh, what, what you see in, in, you know, Rolex Cellini uh, or modern Rolex Cellinis, which still cracks me up because I feel like people are starting to tune into them. But there's a part of that that I love, this idea of like the beating heart of the explorer wrapped in this like precious metal, you know, guilloché <laughs> uh, 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 dialed dress watch. That's I don't I don't know, man. It always kind of carried carried a, a vibe of that brand forward in a way that I'd never I'd never really thought of them. And IWC is one of the same, you know, one of the same uh, uh, or cut from the same cloth where you can find these tough as nails going to be strapped onto a fighter pilot's wrist, you know, like let's all let's all take off from the aircraft carrier vibe. But then they'll also have a similar caliber and something that would be, you know, just as well at home in uh, next to a bespoke suit. And, and that's to me, I don't know. I, I just find that kind of, you know, uh, uh, juxtaposition really appealing about the brand. Yeah, I think I think that's that's so true. And I think if you if you look at the Rolex example that you brought up, I mean, you can get a no date Oyster Perpetual. That's essentially an explorer, right? Except yeah. it's it's yeah. got stick hands and and some kind of cooler colored dials nowadays. And um the Mercedes hands have been kind of a love-hate thing for me. And I actually think, you know, to get that no-date kind of rugged Rolex would just be kind of cool to get an Oyster Perpetual, you know, <laughs> kind of kind of do something a little bit different. Yeah. But but with IWC, you know, I remember um, I had 
this was early days uh, at Hodinkee, and we, they did a, a watch pop-up sale here in Minneapolis, where I'm based. And uh, we had two watches in this sale um, that I was kind of manning the booth here at, at like a, a pop-up event. And, um, and it was a, the Yacht Club. It was an early yeah. yacht club. Oh from man, the, I love that watch. From the early seventies, and it was it was such a beautiful watch. And I think there was one steel one and one gold one. And you know these watches weren't on my radar. And I'd owned a couple of IWCs, Aqua Timers, and I think I had a Pilot's Chronograph at the time. But um, I don't know that yacht club was just like, wow, this is really cool. This is like an IWC that I didn't really pay much attention to. And uh, I, I just thought that was really cool. What's cool too is like they're still taking risks in that line in a way that I don't I don't know how many people are paying attention to but but like two I can't recall all the years are blurred. <laughs> so the last year the year before they released um, a, a a absolutely stunning gold yacht club with a um, unusual tide measuring complication. Hmm. Have you seen this? I haven't. No, I don't know. That yeah, one. it's a really it's a really fascinating watch. It's a super esoteric complication, but essentially um, it, it it is a a a tide timer so you can time when high tide or low tide. Yeah, hits your you know will will hit you um on the shore. I suppose if you if you're a super ritzy surfer, this is a pretty awesome watch. Yeah, um, you know it's 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 not cheap. It's like a thirty thousand dollar watch. But but the yeah. the thing that I love about it is you know here here out of left field comes a, a a super specific, really unusual, completely unique complication from you know in solid gold from a company best known for its tough as nails you know tool watches. Yeah. That still fits in the family, but kind of sits on the fringe. And that's what I meant by like tuning into the frequency. You know, if, if you're dialed into IWC, there's all this stuff to find in there that you wouldn't think to look for. Yeah. You know, like we haven't even touched on the Ingenieur line yet. Yeah, I was going mean, to say like that. That's still yeah. my my grail watch, which um, has really skyrocketed over the years. Um, the the, the original Ingenieur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are solid gold ingenues out there that are that are just ludicrously beautiful watches, you know, that had a really unique point of view. Obviously, you know, if if you want to if you want to go the heritage route, like are still you know Regenta design, you know, and 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 nobody nobody really gives it you know much much attention. But if you take a good hard look at what they did with them, you know, and and not only how they applied a, a unique IWC design perspective to what was a heightened luxury watch at the time. You get some really interesting output, and and I've discovered this that over the decades, as you look at the '60s, the '70s, the '80s, etc. of IWC, there are all of these like crazy risks that the brand would take that still fell in their design language, but but still stepped outside of the norm. Like uh, there's an, you know, another good example. Of this is uh, uh, Jason. Please correct me if, if I'm uh, if I'm wrong about this, but like uh, we're, we're the white ceramic um, perpetual calendar. Uh, uh, you know what I'm talking about? The white ceramic and gold what? perpetual calendar, Da Vinci. Oh yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. You know, like this is yeah. a completely insane watch for, yeah. for like early nineties, late eighties ish. Yeah, I think. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and here that here they were rolling the dice on something that was truly technically impressive, mm -hmm. but also like a pretty ballsy design for the era. Yeah. And it's one of those pieces that I feel like, you know, maybe people are trying to notice it again now with the 3705, 3706 thing being, you know, uh, uh, under the radar, these are two references of of, um, of uh, uh, pilot chronographs that that are making, uh, uh, I think, a recurrence in, in in the market. Yeah, but it's causing people to look at other ceramics and other things that are happening at the era, and and you can see IWC taking these risks with with very limited <laughs> commercial success and benefit, but very 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 forward thinking, and that's just so neat to me. I, I think 
one hallmark of the brand, you know, when you look back at the nineties, which arguably was kind of their a high watermark for the brand uh, yeah. to many people um, because they were doing so many uh, very inventive things was, was um, a few examples, you know, that, that uh, Da Vinci perpetual calendar, which was uh, cooked up by Kurt Klaus, who is their very famous, you know, now very quite old uh, famous watchmaker. Still a spokesperson um, by the way, which uh, yeah. is very interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, he, he based that off of a, a Valju 7750 um, movement, you know, which is a movement that everybody loves to loves to poo poo and think, you know, this is kind of a very off the shelf uh, basic chronograph movement. And he he used that to to build this incredible perpetual calendar, um, and then to do it with with a ceramic case, and it has a very baroque design. I mean, it's 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 it, it was really out of left field. But then the other thing that came out of that era too was when Richard Habring, the Austrian watchmaker, was working for IWC in those days, and and he came up with with the Deep One, which was a, a aqua timer, so a dive watch that had a, a mechanical depth gauge function on it, and um, you know that was another kind of really bold move. I mean, this is a time when you know if you look back at that era, uh, watchmaking was you know Swiss watchmaking was was not doing well. You know, I mean, this was kind of the latter stages of the quartz crisis. Brands were just starting to resurrect, and That's right, here you have yeah. this brand that was doing this cool stuff with. You know this crazy perpetual calendar. Habring also pioneered the the double uh, the split seconds chronograph, also based on a seventy seven fifty. So, you know they were doing some interesting stuff back then. I think they have this, uh, you know, and you can kind of lean on a Germanic sort of cliche of a very engineering minded company, but they do that also with this bit of design flair as well that we've seen in in a lot of their watches. Yeah, I mean, not, you, you hit the nail on the head. Nineties IWC. For for both me and 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 my partner Gabe, it, it's 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 the high it's the high point, and and that's no insult to modern IWC, which is phenomenal. But it's the emotional it's the emotional connection that brought us in. And I mean, mm -hmm. you know, the, the watch that that we that we just released, um, the C 3 is we like to think of it as a love letter to to nineteen nineties IWC. Yeah, you know, we th there are elements of the design back then that that skewed so ultra utilitarian and yet still had soul to it that that brought us in and that's that's in addition to exactly what you just pointed out the brilliance of of the perpetual calendar the doppel i didn't even know about the deep one so now now i'm gonna have to go down a hole on that. Thank you. <laughs> but um but but that you know led us to to wanting to work with them and in fact it was gabe going to schaffhausen for a completely unrelated uh work event and seeing a 3706 on the wrist of uh, a gentleman at Schaffhausen and just becoming so obsessed with it that he hunted it down and then literally wouldn't stop talking to me about all of the minute details of it from not just from, you know, from the dial design and spoke to him, but even even the perlage, like the specific decoration on the interior of the clasp, which is, you know, such an, an unnecessary but but really cool and thoughtful um, bit of decoration that spoke to how, you know, how thoughtful and cohesive the design of a watch like that was. Yeah. So, you know, that kind of led us down the path to, to what, what we ended up uh, uh, building in collaboration with them today. Well, uh, so, okay. So to like, in terms of making a collab or designing a watch, like there are a, a bunch of things that I feel like people like, it's like unwritten rules, right? So like a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, especially with IWC is, a watch that makes you dive deeper into the brand, right? So like mm -hmm. there's 
and there's a surface value, right? But like, I'll, I'm not going to lie. I've been so like wildly distracted by this conversation of all I want to do is go and Google all these other you know references and start looking at all these other pictures. And so it's like there has to be some sort of magic there that needs to be, you know, like the formula has to be out there that like you are looking at something that's new, right? But all you want to do is discover the past about it. Does that make sense? Like, I'm, I mean, because I'm, I'm butchering my own passion right now. But like, there's something in that, right? Well, look, when we, when we set out to make a collaboration, I mean, neither Gabe nor I are watch designers. And, and we don't, you know, we don't aspire to be. I mean, that, that's a very particular skill set. And especially when you're working with a brand like IWC, whose design language is, is very strict and, and highly recognizable. I think it's important to not diverge from that simply for the sake of making something that's novel or new or, or you know, controversial to attract attention. Right. I think what's so fascinating about IWC now, and um, I think Christian Knoop, who's their, their head of design, deserves an insane amount of credit for this, is, is that he operates within a very, very, very strict set of, of brand guidelines and, and um, brand vernacular. You know, any watch that you see from IWC right now is and should be instantly recognizable as an IWC from across the room. And yet he's been able to push the limits of that quite significantly with a lot of the new releases that we've seen in this year where he stays very much within their design language, but pushes it further. And we've seen this with like the experimental big pilot that they just released um, that's capable of withstanding, you know, bone crushing, horrifying levels of of uh, g-force like no human could survive what this watch can survive but um but the, the and the design of the watch is is definitely quite avant-garde relative to you know other other iwcs and yet if you look at it very closely there you know the crown the subdial, all of these things are 100 are in line with with the brand voice so when we, you know, approached them, you know, we had an idea and we had a, a creative brief that we wanted to bring to life. But it's Christian and his team who took that and interpreted it into into the voice of IWC to make sure that it was still cohesive, but but a, but still pushing some limits on where, you know, they felt comfortable in uh, within the context of their brand. I think no matter who you're working with, I mean, we just did a collaboration a few months ago with Urwork, you know, and um, Urwork is is another brand that is extremely recognizable i should say you know just just from across the room uh but part of what's so great about them is that they can they can they can take their visual language and they can reinterpret an idea through that visual language and come out with something completely novel but still totally recognizable as urwork so you you talk about unwritten rules of collaboration and to me i think the most important rule of collaboration is to honor the core design language of the of the watchmaker you're collaborating with so that you know you can tell a, maybe a new story with it, but you're not you're not stripping away what makes those watches distinct. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true, and I, I think you know the thing about you mentioned that this watch was somewhat inspired by '90s IWC and kind of the hallmarks of the brand, and I think mechanical watches in general and this whole industry is an exercise in nostalgia. You know, it's <laughs> it, it is all about. I mean, we, we don't, as you mentioned at the top here, you know, we don't need these things to tell time. Um, they're, they're meant to inspire us and to remind us. I, I often think to myself, you know, why are we all walking around with vintage 
dive watches on or pilot's watches or vintage inspired ones. And I think, are we somehow, you know, to kind of armchair psychoanalyze all of us, are we trying to harken back to a time of when, when people had to really do stuff, you know, like uh, red wing heritage <laughs> boots or, you know, Filson clothing, you know, yes. are we wearing the watches for the same reason? Do we, do we long for a time when you had to split your own wood and carry your own water and build fires and hunt for your food? Um, because we've become somewhat detached from that. And I don't know if that's the case, but I also do feel that, that with watches, you know, with, even with an Urwerk, which is a very avant-garde, very modern design, I mean, it still is an exercise in nostalgia. You still want to see gears and springs and something moving. Yeah. Based purely so on winding, whether it be by the movement of your arm or by the a twist of your fingers. Um, I don't know. It's just, I think it's something we'll never lose. I think I think you're you're touching on something really important because yeah in the context of tool watches I think that's completely that's completely true and and you know Gabe and I talk about the fact that this is a watch that like probably more than the other others that we've made you know is one that that, that I want to encourage people to wear and beat up and scratch like this is a watch that demands to be worn and there's you know there's there's something really beautiful about that since I think so much of modern watchmaking is about like keeping it mint. <laughs> Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Which is True. which is like totally weird, but whatever. Put that aside. Um, but then there's the other side of nostalgia, which, which to me comes in not on the mechanical component, but on the design angle. And that's where you know that's where you see brands that are actually rooted 100 percent in nostalgia, like MBNF, and to a degree Urwork, where it's like a creative idea or, or or a certain you know a certain creative switch was flicked in the maker, and 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 they're driven. To, to like bring this to life. You know, if you're Max Booster, it's like, it's cars, it's Star Trek, you know, it's spaceships, <laughs> it's dogs, you know? And, and, and the, the, it's like, he comes back to it again and again and again. And, and with Urwerk, same thing, it's spaceships, you know? I mean, also like the UR-103 is, a, is literally a spaceship with a rocket ship engine for a crown. <laughs> and at least, I mean, that, you know, that's what I see when I see it. And, yeah. and, 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 and that sort of like childlike joy comes to life through these these kinetic pieces of art well the, and i sorry go ahead I, i'm sorry no so just to finish the thought i you know i see i see two entry points where you have artists looking at, at at watches as their canvas for telling for telling the story of 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 themselves and 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 what they what they grew up with and, and their passions and then you have this other side of you know watches inspiring you to go do those things or go do something anything really you know that that you know that, that is a feeling you can only get from like a field watch or a pilot's watch or some, you know, or something that makes you feel like you should climb Everest or, you know, or, or if you're like me, just get out of the house and take a damn hike, you know, but, but those, those two entry points, I think give us opportunity to tell different kinds of stories. And that goes back to your original point of like, why bother? Well, this is why, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, well, so this is like a, speaks to an even bigger thing that's happening. Uh, so there's a few different, you know, far more intelligent anthropologists than I'll ever be. But like, they're talking about a lot of like, the the newer younger generation is trying to go as analog as possible, right? Like, sure. young kids, they want VHS. Okay, wow. so it's like a level of wow. technology that is like, just so be enough. kind, rewind, is yeah. gonna be relevant. Again? <laughs> no, exactly. They want VHS. Cool. <laughs> but one of the things and like, they had pulled up like a young person's like comet, that's like, I don't want any connected battery or radio on my body right wow. and if you think about it like so that means you're not having your phone um you know there's even there's a person a celebrity person that like i follow and they 
at their home, they don't have, they don't have like, they don't have any service and they just have a landline. And then they have that landline on at certain times of the day, which (laughs) as an aside, you could argue is just like an extremely privileged thing to, to have. But it's just like the, the concept of really trying to shun a ton of technology and revert back to things that were like basically just enough in the sense that, yeah, just take a regular phone call and like not being as connected, not being as, you know, like on the grid, like have a regular watch, don't have GPS in on 500 different things in your home. It's like, but I feel like that nostalgia thing I think is going to just drastically increase more and more with a younger generation. Uh, I mean, we're seeing it happen with ours right now, but definitely with the younger one. There's another... I'd love oh, to see ahead. that. I mean, I think uh, I, maybe it's um, a growing sense of of paranoia about being um, hacked, yeah. uh, observed, uh, spied on. You know, I, I don't know if it's you know people just want to unplug, or if it's just the growing complexity of the world that we, we will we all kind of come back to that that um, that longing for a simpler time. I mean, I think you know I. I always sort of breathe a sigh of relief every time I turn on like masterpiece theater and you see all creatures great and small and, you know, guys with everything was leather and metal and wood and, you know, like you walked places or you rode a bicycle or, you know, I mean, it's, you kind of almost, you can almost feel the stress leave your body when you even watch these kind of nostalgic kind of shows. And I think something something has been lost as we've moved away from that. And, and maybe, maybe I need to be more optimistic and have faith that humanity will one day sort of right itself and kind of come back to a more middle ground when it comes to balancing, you know, technology. Listening to you speak about that, it occurred to me that, that another way to think about complicated mechanical watchmaking is, is a, is a very self, it's a very human empowered way of thinking about how to solve problems. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about the way complicated a complicated watch works, it, it, it is requiring an individual to, through precision and persistence, come up with a way to to measure and track and and address a challenge that previously would have been impossible. Right. So I, I'm actually wearing one of those Kirk Klaus perpetual calendars right now. Oh yeah. And I find this to be the most enjoyable watch that I've owned in some time because of how clever it is in the way that it approaches the problem. So for those that are unfamiliar. So for those who are unfamiliar, a perpetual calendar is a watch that should that, that will tell you essentially, assuming you keep it fully wound, the time, the day, the date, and the uh, and the month and the year, uh, and account for leap years essentially. So if you were to perpetu- keep it quote unquote perpetually wound, it would it would always be accurate, um, which is an incredible feat. But most of most perpetual calendars require you to use a pusher, right? So a little pin adjuster to set all of the various functions, the, the moon phase, the day, the month, the year, et cetera. What is so brilliant about what Klaus did is he created a module, so a component that's added onto that base movement that has calculated all of that already. So essentially, all you ever have to do with this watch is set the time and the day, the time and the date, that's it. Everything else, the month, the year, uh, the moon phase is all geared in, in coordination to that. So it is actually, in many ways, the most accurate perpetual calendar you can have because there's no room for user error with the one exception maybe of if you roll it too far into the future in which case you're completely screwed and you have to wait for it to catch up or send it to iwc <laughs> but separate issue <laughs> um nothing's perfect right but but the point is it's an absolutely brilliant way of, of of solving 
a technical problem. And if you think about other forms of, you know, complicated watches down the road, you know, one of my other favorite examples of that is the Glashute original um, Senator um, Cosmopolite, which is a super esoteric travel watch. And without going too far down a rabbit hole, it basically is an exercise in relative gearing because you're able to constantly adjust and account for um, time zones that are at 15 minute or 30 minute offsets against your home time. Mm-hmm. And it does all of this um, in, re- you know, through relative gearing that you can control through three crowns. It's utterly brilliant. And it's one of these, it's one of these things where we don't think about how to solve that problem right now because your iPhone can do that, of course. No big right. deal. Yeah. Yeah. But, but if you, if you, if you imagine forcing yourself to sit down and say, how do I do this with math? Yeah. And then how do I do this in a way that I can actually, and then how do I create something like this that is reproducible and not ludicrously expensive and, 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 and build it as an exercise in my ability to do it? To me, like that's just, that's just so, like magical to me. And, and, and I think, what else, I think you know, complicated watches in that way are beautiful. I'm sorry, go ahead. What else is there in the world that is the equivalent of watchmaking or, or watch collecting for that matter? You know, it, it's, you talk about the aesthetics of it and the, the beauty of, there's the hand finishing aspect, there's the design aspect. And then you have what you just talked about, which is this very mathematical engineering side of things that can be very practical, um, you know, unnecessary in many ways because of technology moving forward but it combines these elements and it's a very i like to to think nowadays it's a bit trendy but you know it's a very sustainable thing too you know i mean what else can you buy or own that was made in the 1920s or 30s um that could be passed from generation to generation to generation still be worn every single day i mean literally every single day and be functional um and last in perpetuity as long as you don't flood it, drop it, lose it, you know? I mean, there's, there, there really is nothing else. You can't say automotive is the same way. That's yeah, true. A Architecture, pen? I suppose, to a certain yeah, degree. Yeah, I was all these say other things are much more... Yeah, but, but the watch suck. is so unique. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, totally. Any pen lovers out there, but here comes the hate mail. <laughs> I'm not a pen. You guys lover. are basic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And that in and of itself, I think, lends, lends itself to the romance of it, you know? I mean, that... It's funny, like sometimes I get really, well, I probably should be worried about like how much I've spent on watches in my life and like, you know, this is justified or, or whatnot. But there, in the end, you're right. It's, 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 it's an investment in, in something that has staying power in a way that like other ob- objects don't. This is why I will never buy a fancy car mm-hmm. because I look at fancy cars as a consumable, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and eventually I'll, I'll eventually I'll destroy it. Yeah. yeah they crash, they rust, they, mm-hmm. yeah. They there, yeah. There's definitely like, I feel like a lot of watch people I know are also car people and that I kind of wrestle with because even and even when like I was used to be obsessed with Porsche and all that stuff and I would even try to say Porsche instead of Porsche and all that crap. Right. (laughs) And but like over time, it's it's just yeah, like what you were saying. I mean, I think if a car was smaller, if I if there was a shrink button. And I could go, you know, full Marvel comics and shrink my car and then I could, you know, keep it safe and do all those things. Maybe I'd be more into cars. But like yeah. at least with watches, it's like, you know, to my left, I have all my watches in a drawer and that's it. Yeah. And they're great. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Right. Yeah. Maybe this is why Chris Granger hair likes Hot Wheels so much. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's that's true. Yeah. We figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-huh. No, but look, in the end, 
Um, and this is this is what I this is what I think is an important topic, especially right now where the watch market is so stupidly overheated. I mean, you know, when, when I when I started to get into watches, uh, which immediately makes me sound old and awful. But, you know, when I started to get into watches, like it was more of a niche nerd community. And, um, you know, as it, watches, watches were a losing proposition for yeah. the most part, you know, so you're only getting into it because you liked it. It's not like it's not like you were going to get one and then suddenly make a bunch of money off of it. Like I, I wasn't playing in that space. Yeah, I was playing in like just, you know, um, old school, just standard old watches where you buy them and then you just accept that 50% of it's gone and that's that. But with an overheated market right now, I think there's so many people that look at this hobby in a very different way. And, and part of what, what, it, what has been robbed from it in that, I think, is the open-mindedness and willingness to explore some of these more esoteric and bizarre things, which ultimately are what make, you know, watch collecting so fascinating to me. You know, when we talk about like, oh, you can still get something for X dollars. To me, like it's it's almost like an inverse of that is what's important. It's like it's not what you can get it for. The point is nobody's looking at them, and there's all sorts of fascinating stuff to be discovered there. And if you go down that road, you can see you can you can expand your horizon so broadly in enjoying watch collecting either either as an expression of personal style or an expression of of, of a commitment and and love of engineering or as you know an expression of of yourself and what you like to do with your life, et cetera. All of these things can come together if you if you let go of like, you know, well, what's the residual value on this? And, you know, how does what does the secondary market think? And it's like in the end, forgive me, but like, who the fuck cares? Like, seriously, like in the end, if if art is being driven by what what you are attracted to, right. it's going to be so much more fulfilling and we're going to find so much more stuff. And ultimately, and I think this is the really important part. We're going to encourage new watchmakers to feel like they can take risks and that they can go out and they can make new art and do new things that ultimately will ad- be additive to the community, create more artists, more people with this skill set and more stories to tell. And we don't feel like we're going to have to like be so focused on where we are right now, which is, you know, hype driven. I also will fully acknowledge that I am here talking about a watch that you have to apply to buy <laughs> and that is limited. So like I, I, I recognize that and I want to put that out there. <laughs> we can talk about it in a separate issue. But broadly speaking, part of the reason why 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 collective exists at all is to be able to to highlight, you know, watchmakers that may not necessarily be in the spotlight at the moment, IWC notwithstanding. But that we are proud to work with because we think they have something unique to say. And that was, you know, that was certainly true about Urwork. It's very true about our friend Josh Shapiro, you know. Right. And it's and to a degree, it's certainly true about IWC, which has been committed to saying something about, you know, the utility of of watchmaking for a hundred years. Well, let me let me push on that in a sense, because at least the original concept of applying uh, was mm-hmm. more about ensuring that like people were able to get stuff right, and that there there could yeah. you could kind of foster that community versus exclusivity, and you can't get things right. I mean, yeah. So so the, the, neither Gabe nor I love the idea of ap- of application. I mean it it come it can come across as like elitist. It can come across as exclusionary, and that was never the point. The point was to be able to foster intimacy. And the idea was if somebody is willing to, and it still is, if somebody's willing to spend 10 or 15 minutes to tell them, tell, uh, tell us about themselves, right? then they may very well be, be a wonderful addition to a community of people who are held together by collaborative watches, but are ultimately there because they want to meet other people with a similar passion and, and feel like they can communicate with one another comfortably and safely 
and avoid some of the the, the trolling realities um, of of modern day watch community. Just to be completely candid, you know. So for us, you know, it, it's less about like, oh, are you worthy? And then we'll induct you in our secret ceremony. <laughs> it's more of, you know, it, it's more of. Do, do you care enough to spend a few minutes to to actually introduce yourself and 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 want to participate? Or do you, do you just want to buy a watch? Which, by the way, is totally fine and like great. But that's not what we built this for, mm. and that's why mm. that's why we have a, an application process for collective. Interesting. Um, that being said, I mean, I feel like because that is what turned a lot of people off of watches in general is the feeling that like I can't get this or I don't belong to where like and and that's the thing for me that I've really come to realize that like that's totally not the case like if you even now like if you join any watch forum if you join any sort of thing like i have not found any issues where i was not welcome with open arms and that's with my my stupid little username i'm not i'm not kidding you know to where like no one knows who i am or or cares about me but i'm just a person who wants to learn right and i think it's the attitude versus what you know maybe other people will think where like i have someone who messaged me once and they were like what are five watches i can buy that are going to be worth 10x their value in two years and i'm like well that that's like if that's your pursuit that's fine but like i i don't want a watch to be an index fund you know i, What's I, the I almanac want... that that biff gets rich off of <laughs> oh yeah from back to the future sports almanac <laughs> hey butthead need... yeah this is yeah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you, you need a copy of the Almanac, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I think that's the thing that I really, and I know that many other people get turned off by, especially with right now with, you know, the air quote shortages of all these other watches. It's like, no, like there's surely there are other places you can go to get uh, a watch, but more importantly, be in a community and, and belong. So I don't know, I digress, but I think like it's, it's always have a very negative stigma and that. Whenever I tell people I'm into watches, they're like, oh, you must be A, B, C, and D. And I'm like, what? No. <laughs> I had done an interview a few years ago with the, the founder, the, the now founder of the current Vertex watch company. And uh, his name's Don. And Don is the great, great, maybe great grandson of the founder of Vertex, a British brand that, that was part of the Dirty Dozen. Yeah, yeah. To circle back on our earlier conversation. And, and when Don came out with, the new Vertex, his first watch that he released, the M100, which was a, a modern take on the Dirty Dozen watch, which I think is just beautiful. Um, his strategy was you can only acquire this watch by being referred to another. I think he picked 100 people at first, and then each of those could pick five to kind of be part of this, you know, make you eligible to buy this watch. And I interviewed him, and it came across really badly on Hodinkee. Mm. Um, there were a lot of commenters that said this is very elitist and exclusionary and um, unfair and, and all that's wrong with the industry. And I think Don, you know, having known him now for several years, I think he feels bad about how that went because his idea wasn't that he's trying to exclude people. It's that his feeling was if, if you wanted a Panerai, like all you had to do was go out. If you were rich, you could go buy this stuff. Like anybody could own these. And yeah. it was, it was like, if you have the money, you can be part of this club, you know, you can just buy, but like in this way, he wanted it to be like, it's, it, it's sort of not a secret, but it's, it's a community that gets built further and further by people like passing on word of mouth and recommending it had nothing to do with your financial status, you know, social status or anything. Yeah. It was just, 
word of mouth. And I think he's changed his model to a certain degree other than a few specific models of, of watch. But um, I guess there's, there's a, a number of ways you can, you can tackle this. And I think, uh, you know, uh, what you're doing at collective, I think is, is, is a slightly different spin on that. I, I think it's, it's, it's a community of, of, of like-minded people. And I think you're not being exclusionary. It's you've, you've created for lack of a better term, a, a club or an organization that um, you can do whatever you want. You can make your own rules. I mean, if you know, I mean, it, I, I don't know. It's, I, I'm very neutral on it. Um, I, I'm neutral on what Don has done. And I think what, what you're doing as well, I think it's, uh, you know, it's your prerogative and there's plenty of other watches out there that people can buy or forums to join or clubs. And, you know, I mean, we've, we've talked about, I mean, look, so Don Cochran is, is definitively one of the coolest dudes I've ever met. Um, I, I remember I had a pint of beer with him a couple of years ago when I was in London and I was, you know, I've, I've owned some of his watches before and he was cool as a cucumber because halfway through the conversation I mentioned, cause I was about to buy the mono pusher. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I, I sold, uh, I sold my M100 and he looked me right in the eye and he's like, oh, I know. Because, it, like, oh my God. Was like, we yes, have people the everywhere. O- the new yeah. owner reached out and registered it. I'm yeah. aware. And I'm sure, yeah, like, he wasn't giving me any crap or anything, but I was like, ooh, you're, yeah, you focus. But the thing is, like, that's part of what makes him so interesting to me because not only is he making incredible watches, but he is very aware of what's happening in the community of people who own them, mm-hmm. not to, not to wag their finger as like some of the larger, you know, companies do. But because he really cares about the people who own these watches and, and, and the community that he's built around them matters to him. In fact, mm-hmm. I think he's even trying to build a clubhouse for Vertex owners in in London yeah. who can just come and hang out and talk about, you know, talk about watches and whiskey or what have you. Yeah. Because that's he wants to create that kind of, you know, foster that kind of community. And, you know, look, I think for us, we could have built collective and just approached and said, like, we're going to make collaborations. We're going to make them available to everybody. And. You know, in, in full transparency, it probably would be easier to do that. Um, but I think what what I like about the way that we're approaching it, and I understand why some people might not share that perspective, is that it, it, th- there's always the promise in, uh, that if you're in collective, that any watch that we make, you will always have access to. And that if you want to join collective, that that will be true for you too. Mm-hmm. And I think... Nowadays, you know, with with the reality of 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 of, of FOMO and and the, the community being as large as it has grown to, when something is released, you have to make a decision so quickly if you're going to get it. And and even if if there's something that that is astronomically expensive, you have to do that. Like I even have wa- I wanted that Everest Vacheron since the day I saw it at the Phillips auction preview. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And uh, th- th- there, there was no speed dial fast enough to let me be able to place an order for that watch, and, and that's a thirty-five thousand dollars watch. Yeah. So I, I un- so for us, I mean, to me, it's 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 not necessarily. I understand why people might have a negative reaction to the the closed nature of it, but at the same time, I like. I hope people get a, you know po- a positive reaction to being in it, and then knowing that you'll never have that. You know, part of what we do for members that's important is our members know what we're making well in advance of when we announce it publicly for new members, which means they have a good amount of time to think about, is this a watch they want? Mm-hmm. Oh. Is this something that's going to fit in their collection? And then when it goes on sale, they have seven days, seven days to where they're guaranteed an allocation with the same case number, et cetera. So they don't have to rush, you know? And I think that's important because part of the problem, I think that we see nowadays with, with such a thriving secondary market, driving so many 
primary market decisions is that people buy things on impulse and then wake up in the middle of the night going, what did I just do? <laughs> they dump it. And then we end up in this cycle where folks are like, how come, some, how come I placed an order for a watch that's now available on Chrono 24 and I haven't even gotten mine yet? Yeah. Well, part of it is, is this constant, you know, pounding of FOMO novelties on limited timeframes, which creates this kind of frothy environment that we're in. Yeah. So I, I, I hope that, you know, part of the joy of being a member in Collective is knowing that, you, that for, at least with us, that's never going to be a challenge. You'll always have enough time to decide if it's right for you. Mm. And in case folks are wondering, we don't require members to buy every watch. Members are asked to commit to one watch every two years. And we do our best to have a diversity in pricing. So, for example, this watch, the IWC, is $7,150. Uh, the Urwerk was a smidge more expensive <laughs> at $63,000, <laughs> you know, but um, the watch before that was fifteen. The watch before that was twenty, and the watch before that was six six thousand eight hundred and fifty. So we try to alternate these things to make it a sustainable practice, which is the other challenge I think with watchmaking, where there is a perception that you should never divest from a watch, or, or, but you should always accumulate. And as watches increase in value, you should just keep buying but never step away, which is clearly financially unsustainable, except for the oligarchs amongst us. And I think we need to question that too as we think about how we continue to make this a sustainable, a sustainable hobby and a place where everybody at every financial level can, can participate, you know? Yeah. I'll step off my soapbox. It's a little, no, I actually, this, <laughs> no, this was very interesting to me. Cause I, I think, you know, cause for me, the, the biggest point that I was personally trying to make is that I think when people think club, or members yeah. sort of thing. I mean, especially look with, with Blamo on the podcast, right? Like we have a large amount of people who support us by being members of the show. And without them, I would, there's so much stuff that we wouldn't be able to do. It's hiring, et cetera. And, but sometimes people are like, Oh, members like, and it's like, no, no, no. Like it's, we all belong and anyone can be a part of it. And it, it's more of just like, you can hang out and you can have a community here. And I think like, this might be like connecting a line that is not necessarily there, but especially over the, during the pandemic, I don't think I realized how lonely I was at times, right? Like, and, f you know, finding a place where I can belong and have a shared, uh, you know, interest, but also meet other people where it's like, sure, we like shoes or, you know, and with Blamo, we like clothes, we like watches, we like cars, we like all that stuff. Um, and still being challenged by, uh, other things, you know, like, I mean, the amount of books that I've like picked up just from different, you know, members over the, uh, over the years of, and like, that's opened my mind up to so many other things has been huge. Um, cause I think that's the one thing, at least for me that I did not realize was going to hit me in my, you know, adulthood level was just like, oh, people are just getting more and more in their world. And then just in, you know, maybe social media, whatever, is just like building more walls around them. And like having things like watches or, you know, other sorts of like icebreakers has allowed me to realize that like, oh, we're actually way more alike than we're different. Um, and maybe it's just from previous political stuff. I don't know. But I think like that's been one of the most exciting things for me is making friends from interests that I didn't even know we had. So. Yeah, I mean, just look at this conversation. I mean, the three of us, three different places, three different backgrounds, three, you know, come come to watches from a different place. But we 
we have this one thing in common and it spurs very interesting conversation. Yeah. You know, yeah. One, one challenge when we talk about objects that are as significantly expensive as watches, I think, is that, you know, to your point earlier, uh, Jeremy, whether, whether it's price, whether it's access, whether it's, you know, any number of other factors, attitude, you know, that might feel, make someone feel unwelcome. My hope is that by continuing to, to have folks build out the value of these communities, we can continue to have a thriving watch world that isn't driven entirely by finance and value. And, um, you know, I was listening to uh, a guy who I, I, I'm, I'm now becoming obsessed with, with listening to, which is uh, Pietro Tomahar from uh, the Limited Edition, which is a store, an online store for independent watches in the UK. And he recently posted a video on, on Instagram, which was really inspiring to me because he was like, I'm sick of people talking to me about whether this is a good, I'm paraphrasing here, but I'm sick of people uh, talking to me about whether this watch is a good buy or a bad buy. He's like, in the end, you know, I used to sell, I used to sell, you know, uh, uh, you know watch X for 6,000 pounds three years ago, and now they're 30,000 pounds. Was that a good buy? Yes. Could I have told you that was going to happen? No. In the end you know, what I want is to expose people to the, to the brands and to the makers who I believe are doing really good things and to, and to inspire you to make the choice to support them. And, you know, we do that all the time when we go to bookstores, right? I mean, nobody asks, is this story going to be the story I'm going to reread or else I'm not going to buy the book? You know, you go into the bookstore and you find something that, that, that connects with you and you go and you buy it and you, and, and you, you read it or, and sometimes it ends up on your shelf and you never touch it again. And sometimes it's something that you come back to again and again and again. Now I realize I'm talking about a 20, object versus a $20,000 object. But I think the same principle applies, which is if if you approach these communities and, and, and I, and I say extended community, inclusive of authorized dealers, watchmakers, et cetera. And you, you, you ask a different question, like, why should I care about this watch? What is this watch trying to say? Why did you pick this brand up? It may very well lead you to some incredible places. And, you know, my hope is that over the years, if someone joins Collective, that we will be able to, to share the passion of folks that may or may not be the world's most financially you know, viable watches or you know, watch companies out there, but, but have something unique to say. Hmm. And, and I mean that as a massive compliment to the folks that we've worked with and the folks that we intend to work with in the future. So that if you're a member, you know, y- the watches that we will bring to your attention that we're going to make are ones that we think deserve that attention. And and we hope that that as as a collector that that will that will add value to the conversation. And if it doesn't, that's all good. But if if you but the curated journey, I think, is something that 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 has been the most exciting part of building this to me. And I think the most important lesson I've taken away as a watch collector, which is stop caring what anyone else thinks. Start following what what you're into, and you're going to have so much more fun. Hmm. Um. That being said. What is a watch uh, that each of you feel like you overlooked and are now coming back around to? It could from anyone. It doesn't matter. Anything made by Ulysses Nardin. What? O- honestly, interesting. Yeah. I, I, ju- you know, everyone carries a bias, right? And I, it, it, you could say the same thing about Gerard Pergo for me. Where I, you know, I, I carried a bias towards these brands because, you know, I, I was influenced by the greater community. Like, don't look at a Laureato. That's just a Royal Oak ripoff, you know? 
don't look at that Ulysses Nardan like that's 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 who, who wears one of those. And then, you know, you start to to actually spend some time understanding who a brand like UN was, right? Uh-huh. Or is, I should say. Yeah, yeah. You know, and like a legit, and suddenly like, you know, their marine chronometer heritage makes a lot more sense when you look at, I, I can never say that, but the torpilleur, <laughs> torpilleur, excuse me. Yeah. You know, um, I failed French. <laughs> but um, like I, you know, those watches now make sense to me. And when they make sense, then I can start to go into them. I can see things I didn't see before, you know, and I own it. I own a UN diver right now. That's, that's a fantastic watch. It's a really fun watch to wear. And I never would have opened my mind to it until I, until I allowed myself to move past what everybody else thinks. Same thing about GP, wow. you know, and now, now these are two brands that I'm completely, completely into. And I, I, I love it because you can go out and you get any one of them, <laughs> you know, and, and that's, that's amazing. It's a good thing. Yeah. Jason, what about you? <laughs> you know, I, I think I, I've finally come to the point <clears throat> in my watch appreciation where I'm not quite as set in my ways or rigid about what makes a a good dive watch. I think I used to kind of toe the line and kind of be the guy that would say, helium release valves are silly. No watches should have them because nobody needs them and nobody understands what they're for on a watch. Um you know, it needs to be highly legible. The bezel needs to be grippy and the loom needs to be great. Like it was always the, the I, w- I was kind of a dive watch Nazi, you know, and I think I just, I just bought a watch last week. Um, that was a perfect example of this. And that is the, I got the white dialed Seamaster Professional, the Omega, the new ceramic dial. That's Gabe's watch. That's awesome. And uh, I, I mean, forever I did not like I strongly disagreed with the quote unquote James Bond Seamaster, the blue dial, blue bezel, Pierce Brosnan era watch. Right, right. It was, you know, the scalloped bezel you can't grip, the skeleton hands are not legible. It's got this silly manually operated helium valve that doesn't make any sense. And lo and behold, I just I bought the latest version of that watch, albeit with a white dial, and I love it. I I I was able to spend a week with the black dial version of it diving a couple of years ago and just grew to absolutely love it. And so I think I'm in general, that watch specifically, but in general, I'm coming around to more quote unquote dress divers or alternative kind of tool watches or dive watches that are more inspired by what a dive watch can be as opposed to being like, this is something you absolutely, you know, need to be fully functional and, and, you know, like to Navy spec, you know? Right. And I right. think, I think the, the Ulysse Narden divers are a good example as well. I, I never cared for those much either for years. And then I, I had one to borrow in Bermuda for, for some diving and kind of grew to like that watch. I, I it, it's like, you need to relax. I think that just go, in general, when it comes to watch appreciation, you need to kind of relax your firmly held beliefs. Um, and it's funny because over the years, I've always been the type that has never been much of a movement snob. You know, I've, I've always said, up, look, if, if a movement isn't adding something significant in terms of function or longevity or service intervals or something, then just go with an off-the-shelf edit movement. I don't care. And I still kind of feel that way. I'm not a movement guy, personally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, on the other hand, I, I, I've needed to relax my views about form versus function and just kind of grow to appreciate things that, that are just there because they, they look great. And I think like the Omega divers are, are kind of in that, in that vein. 
listening to you say that I was reminded of how I, how I figured out or how, how I clicked into Sarpa Neva, hmm. you know, cause for, for years, I'm embarrassed to say this. I'm like, I'm not going to, I would look at Sarpa Neva. He uses a Soprod movement. Yeah. And then it, it like a couple years ago, I had this epiphany of like, you're to- like, what's wrong with you? Like, you're totally missing the point. Who cares? Yeah. Because if you're looking at it, if you're looking at like a Corona and all that you see is the Soprod movement, mm-hmm. then you like, you're completely missing the entire purpose of the watch. Yeah. And as soon as I adjusted into that, then to your point, everything else opened up. It's no longer relevant to me that it's an SW200 or a 2824 or whatever it is that's in my, in my lemon shark diver. Like yeah. it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's not relevant. Yeah. And in that sense, and I realize that sometimes people will be like, well, you know, that, that movement didn't cost very much. So therefore the cost of the watch is too high or this or the other thing. And, you know, like that's whatever. Yeah. But the, in, in the end, as, as, a, as a design object, mm-hmm. you're right. Yeah. It, 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 it's, and I came into it the other way because I, I came into watchmaking, you know, through, through uh, uh, the obsession with like movement decoration and, you know, high, high-end finishing and the rest of it. Yeah. And I, and I feel like I've always released myself on the other end by saying like, that's amazing. It's not the only thing that matters. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel you. Yeah, yeah. I got really into um maybe like the past six months or so. Uh because like I mean, like many people, it's like, okay, I won't I'm there's a lot of watches out there. There's some that are really easy to get, there's some that aren't easy to get. And I mean, to be honest, Instagram was a huge driver of this as like I follow all these different accounts and you're just seeing like random stuff that they have. And uh I basically an old IWC Aqua Timer, which by the way is not really that old. Um, I think it was. It's not the 2000 one, not the one that's like the massive that can, you know, like the deep sea, you know, a version. But uh, the I I don't even I should have known this because I was prepared for this question with the reference number. But the the Aqua Timer with the basically like the yellow um, on the bezel. I mean, just like. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, that 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 one with the integrated uh, rubber bracelet. Yeah, is that what you're I mean, about? and it's yeah. and again, it's not. It's it's expensive, but it's not as crazy as you think it, it mm-hmm. would be. I think like the one that I had found, they were like you know in the mid threes or something like that. But it was just like you know it, nothing too crazy. But like I was just like, this looks really beautiful. It's pretty unique amongst amongst all my friends who are just like racing to slap a sub on their wrist. Um, I mean, it was, you know, and it's just fun. Like, I mean, again, yeah. like all these, it's just a fun watch and I totally overlooked it. And now I've just been digging and monitoring stuff and, you know, emailed all my other watch dealer friends and a few of them responded back and they're like, wait, are you sure this is the one you mean? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, what's awesome about that watch too is, uh, has one of the neatest integrated. So it has an internal rotating bezel, but the internal rotating bezel is controlled by a collar around the pusher the start stop pusher yeah. for the chronograph. Yeah. Cause it's like the, one of the like, like the neatest, Seiko Pogue. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like such a clever solution for, for, you know, for, for keeping the design of the watch, you know, simple. Yeah. Um, but you're right. Like if somebody would look at that and be like, to your point, you know, earlier, Oh, it's a 7750. Like what a stock movement. It's like, first of all, 7750 is an awesome movement. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. let's accept that. And aside from it, not relevant. Yeah. <laughs> not yeah. relevant. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Well, this was great. I I can't thank you both enough for your time and for this this conversation and where we've gone with it. Um, no problem. Thanks. Well, Jen, thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, no, this was great. Nice to meet you. Th- thank yeah. you again. You know, so much for your for your time. This was awesome. That's it. Special thanks to Asher Rapkin of Collective. You can learn more by visiting collectiveheralogy.com and Jason Heaton. 
check out The Grey NATO on Hodinkee and his recent novel, Depth Charge. All right, we'll see you soon.